Tonight is the uh, third and final installment in our study of the book of Leviticus. Three weeks ago, we surveyed chapters 1 through 7, and we looked at the various sacrifices that were commanded to be offered in the worship at the tabernacle. Then two weeks ago, we surveyed the rest of Leviticus. Uh, Just going back to those first seven chapters, you can't read those chapters of Leviticus without noticing that the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was the polar opposite of every religious ceremony that the human mind has ever invented. You know, people love to adorn their religion with pageantry and splendor and decorations that give it glamour and sparkle, but the Old Testament sacrificial system was designed by God to be unspeakably gruesome and bloody, and it was purposely as grim and revolting as righteousness would allow, because the sacrifices were supposed to be a constant, vivid token of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, a reminder of that. And this was the whole point of those sacrifices. The bloody sacrifice of an unblemished animal was like a live demonstration of the catastrophic price of sin against a perfectly holy creator. And Scripture says the inevitable consequence of sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins will die. James 1.15, when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. And so the bloody sin offerings were a perpetual object lesson to remind the Israelites about the law of sin and death. It was impossible to ignore the nonstop flow of blood and butchery that emanated from the tabernacle because the place of sacrifice was always situated at the precise center of the camp. And this endless chain of animal slaughter was an extraordinary and unforgettable visual aid. It it constantly declared to all of the people that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's Hebrews 10.31, of course. And that truth still holds true. But that was the main lesson of the text we looked at in that first look at Leviticus that we took. The Levitical sacrifices demonstrated the exceeding sinfulness of sin in the most graphic way and with a show of death and bloodshed and the complete immolation of a sacrificial animal. And then in our second look at Leviticus, we surveyed chapters 8 through 27, where there the dominant theme is practically the polar opposite. That second half of Leviticus, the the remaining chapters of Leviticus, are filled with laws and instructions, and, and although the bloody trail of sacrifices is still a thread that can be traced all the way through the book, the refrain that becomes the main theme of the whole book of Leviticus is the absolute holiness of God. And in fact, the message of the book is best summed up, perhaps, in Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45, where God is speaking, and He says, "'Set yourselves apart as holy, and be holy, for I am holy. For I am Yahweh, who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy.'" And then variations on that same commandment, "'Be holy, for I am holy,' are repeated actually several times in Leviticus, in the chapters that follow. And in fact, Peter picks up that theme 
and, and uses it at the start of his first epistle, 1 Peter 1.16. It is written, he's referring to the book of Leviticus, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so you have these twin but virtually opposite messages that weave themselves through the book of Leviticus from start to finish. Two parallel but contrasting themes. On the one hand, the monstrous sinfulness of sin, and on the other hand, the majestic holiness of Yahweh. And both of those themes are brought together in chapter 16, where you have Yahweh's instructions for observing the Day of Atonement, and the symbolism of that day binds both of these themes together, the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God. And so tonight we're going to survey that one chapter, Leviticus 16, and to start with, let me remind you of something I said, I think the first week, that this is the center, and it serves as the centerpiece of the whole Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus is the center of those five books, and then at the center of Leviticus is chapter 16, which is a chapter that's entirely devoted to the Day of Atonement. And so the canon of Scripture places the Day of Atonement basically at the geographical heart of Moses' law. And that positioning, I think, is no accident. It's of all the symbols built into the Old Testament ceremonial system, the Day of Atonement is arguably the most important one. It's the most complex and the most prominent of all the sacrificial ceremonies that are described for us in this book of Leviticus. And this is where the New Testament often, most often, points when it's connecting the atoning work of Christ with the Old Testament sacrificial system. And in in fact, this chapter is full of details that foreshadow Christ. In fact, practically every element of the ceremonies that we're going to read about in this chapter points in one way or another to Christ, which is to say this chapter is full of types and symbolism. And I always have to feel, I feel like I always have to explain what a biblical type is. I I dislike that word because it's so easily misunderstood. The word type, you know, in normal English is a synonym for kind, and so when you say something is a type of Christ, there's always going to be someone who thinks you're talking about a different kind of Christ, Uh, you know, as if there were multiple brands or different varieties of messiahs. That is not what we mean when we say something is a type of Christ. A biblical type is a, a symbol or a figure that foreshadows Christ. It's a living picture of him. It's, it's not exactly like a metaphor or a fable, you know, where the thing that you're describing isn't even real. It's only a symbol. But a type is a true and living Old Testament individual or a very real emblem from the Old Testament that prefigures Christ and gives us an important illustration of some vital aspect of his person or work. For example, Jonah is a prophetic type of Christ, and Jonah was a real and living person. Jesus himself said so, but he pointed to Jonah as a picture of his own burial and resurrection, Matthew twelve forty. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus there was telling us, Jonah is a type of me, he said. 
And all of the sacrifices in Leviticus are likewise emblems of Christ and his atoning work. Leviticus 17.11, it's the blood that makes atonement. But Hebrews 10.4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so these animal sacrifices were, of course, real, but they weren't efficacious. They were symbols of something greater yet to come. They were types that foreshadowed the atoning work of Christ. And the death of that animal pictured the death of Christ. And of all all the threads of uh, all that priestly symbolism, which we can't, don't have time to cover them all, but all of them are sort of drawn together on the Day of Atonement in a somber ceremony that in and of itself, this ceremony is bleak and gory, but at the end, triumphant. And that is an exact parallel and a perfect picture of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The crucifixion was literally the darkest moment in all of human history, but in the end, it resulted in the greatest triumph in the history of the universe because sin was fully and finally dealt with. And the atonement, the Day of Atonement, was supposed to be an annual symbol of that reality. It was a, a type of Christ in his atoning work. And it's more loaded with symbolism than any other chapter in the New Testament. This is full of types and prophetic pictures that are designed to teach us lessons about the doctrine of atonement and the atonement itself. So let's look at it. By the way, I agonized over how to teach through this chapter in a way that isn't tedious. But to be honest, some of the tedium here is actually built into the biblical description on purpose by God's design. The instructions for the Day of Atonement are meticulous, and compared to other sacrifices and other Old Testament holidays, this one is very complex. And furthermore, all of the Old Testament feast days and Sabbaths, if you think about them, they were all marked in one way or another by joy. The feasts were celebratory and upbeat. The Sabbaths weren't supposed to be a drudgery either. In Isaiah 58, verse 13, Yahweh says he wanted the Israelites to call the Sabbath a delight. The Sabbath symbolized our entry into the Lord's rest, which really, that's the heart of the gospel too, right? We enter into the rest of the Lord. And and the lesson the Sabbath was designed to teach was that our greatest delight is found in Yahweh. Isaiah 58, verse 13 again, Yahweh pleads with his people, honor the Sabbath, not by doing your own ways, not by finding your own desire and speaking your own word, but take delight in Yahweh. And Yahweh promises, I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. So God promises that if we do with the Sabbath, this entry into his rest, what he intended, it will be delightful to us. He'll make it delightful. And Jesus said the same thing in different languages. He said in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was designed to be a pleasant day of rest and spiritual refreshment, and it was supposed to be observed with joy, except for once a year. On this particular Sabbath, the Day of Atonement, this was a unique Sabbath And it was observed with a completely different mood and mindset. It was a day of sorrow and mourning and humility. 
Leviticus 23:32, speaking of the Day of Atonement, says, this is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at the evening. From evening until evening, you will keep your Sabbath with humility, Scripture stresses. And we'll see that again. But the Hebrew word translated there, humble your souls, means more than that phrase conveys even. The English Standard Version says, you shall afflict yourselves. The King James Version likewise says, ye shall afflict your souls. And the Christian Standard Bible translates it like this, you must practice self-denial. That's the theme of that day. It's a sorrowful self-denial, and all of those expressions, affliction and humility and self-denial, they're all nuances that are indeed built into the Hebrew word that's used for it. It's describing the sorrowful humility that goes hand-in-hand always with genuine repentance. Repentance was the theme of this day, affliction of the soul, self-denial. This was a day to ponder sin and its consequences, the exceeding sinfulness of sin, and the heartache and trouble that is the inevitable fruit of sin, and the impossibly high cost of atonement, and the way sin dishonors God. Think about all of those things. That's how the the Day of Atonement was to be spent. And in a sense, the Day of Atonement was like the Old Testament equivalent of our Good Friday. In fact, that's how Franz Delich, the famous 19th century Old Testament scholar and commentator, saw it. He said the Day of Atonement is the Good Friday of the Levitical system. And that's a good way to think of it. By that, he meant that This is a day whose themes are bleak and full of sorrow, but what it signifies is the highest of all good things in the experience of the sinner, because what it brings about is atonement for sin, expiation of our guilt, the cleansing of the sinner, and the satisfaction of God's just and holy wrath against sin. All of those ideas are built into the symbolism of of the Day of Atonement, and so let's look at it. This chapter is 34 verses long, and normally I wouldn't read a passage that long, but as I said already, the painstaking details spelled out here are part of the point. Atonement for sin is not a simple matter. Sin can't be atoned for in a cheap and easy fashion. What what to do about our sin is a complex and costly problem, and any description of atonement will naturally reflect that. So this is Scripture's most detailed description of the Day of Atonement, and I am going to read the whole chapter. Leviticus 16. Now, Yahweh spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they came near the presence of God and, uh, and died. He's talking about, of course, Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire. And Yahweh said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter in at any time to the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, so that he will not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body And he shall be girded with a linen sash and attired with a linen turban. These are holy garments. 
Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And then Aaron shall bring near the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and his household. And he shall take the two goats and present them before Yahweh at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one for Yahweh and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall bring near the goat on which the lot for Yahweh fell, and he shall offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make atonement upon it, to send it out into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall bring near the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a fire pan full of coals from fire upon the altar before Yahweh, and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before Yahweh, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, so that he will not die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also, in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil to, to do with his blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And he shall sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat, So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now, when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel." Then he shall go out to the altar that is before Yahweh and make atonement for it. And then he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. And with his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it and set it apart as holy from the uncleanness of the sons of Israel. And when he finishes making atonement for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring near the live goat." Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins, and he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it out into the wilderness by the hand of a man ready to do this. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an isolated land, and he shall send out the goat in the wilderness." Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar And the one who sent the goat out as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water, and then afterward he shall come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, 
shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. And this shall be a perpetual statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the sojourner or who sojourns with you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before Yahweh. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It's a perpetual statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to minister as a priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a perpetual statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as Yahweh had commanded Moses, so he did. Now, some additional notes on the Day of Atonement then show up a few chapters later in Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 32. And I want to read those verses as well because they go with this. Leviticus 23, you know, is a, uh, it's a compact review of all of the Sabbaths and feast days, the weekly Sabbaths the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, and the Day of Atonement, and also then the Feast of the Tabernacles. All of this in one chapter. It surveys them all. Seven verses in that chapter are devoted to the Day of Atonement. And notice, the stress here in Leviticus 23 is about how this is to be a day of humility and self-denial. This is how the people are to respond. Chapter 16 gives all of Aaron's duties. Chapter 23 talks about the duty of the people. And here's what those seven verses say. Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 32. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. And you shall humble your souls and bring an offering by fire near to Yahweh. And you shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before Yahweh your God. If there's any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. And as for any person who does any work on this same day, that person I will cause to perish from among his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual statute Throughout your generations, in all your places of habitation, it is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening. From evening until evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Now, then there's one more place in the Old Testament that gives instructions for the Day of Atonement, and it's in the book of Numbers. This passage is only five verses long, but this passage in Numbers actually gives us some additional details that are not covered in Leviticus 16. So here's Numbers chapter 29, verses 7 through 11. I'll just read it. You don't need to turn there, but listen to it. Then on the tenth day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall humble yourselves. You shall not do any work, 
And you shall bring near a burnt offering to Yahweh as a soothing aroma, one bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old, having them without blemish, and their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the sin offering of atonement, and the continual burnt offering and its grain offering and their drink offerings. Now notice, that passage in Numbers doesn't even use the expression day of atonement. We know that's what it's describing because it's the tenth day of the seventh month, and that is the prescribed date for the day of atonement. And, and by the way, Numbers 29, the whole chapter, is about the seventh month. It describes what occurs in that seventh month. It's an important month. There were three events every year during the seventh month. The month began with the Feast of Trumpets, and then the tenth day was the Day of Atonement, and then the fifteenth day marked the start of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And here's a fact that might surprise you. In all of Scripture, the actual expression, the Day of Atonement, appears only three times. That phrase is not even used in our chapter, Leviticus 16, which is all about the Day of Atonement, but it never uses that expression. The, the, the Day of Atonement appears twice in that passage I read from Leviticus 23, and then it's used just one more time in Scripture in a text I didn't read, Leviticus 25, verse 9, where it's just mentioned in passing because the actual point in Leviticus 25 is about the year of Jubilee. You know, that's that year that came up every 49 years, which was a year of celebration and uh, the restoration of debts and the freedom of slaves and all that. Every 49 years this came up, and the Day of Atonement is mentioned there because the Jubilee year was to commence on that day, at the end of that day. After all the sacrifices were complete for the Day of Atonement, Uh, a a horn would be blown, and that signified the beginning of the jubilee year. So for a whole year, nobody worked, slaves were freed. It was the year of jubilee. Modern Jews today celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, on the first day of the seventh month. Tishri, it's called, their seventh month. And remember, that first day of the seventh month is the start of the Feast of Trumpets. Today, it's known as Rosh Hashanah. It's the the Jewish New Year, actually. And then the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, comes 10 days later. Again, it's the 10th day of their seventh month, Tishri. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the year of Jubilee begins not on the Jewish New Year, that would have been the first day of the month, but the year of Jubilee actually begins on the Day of Atonement, the 10th day of the month, 10 days into their new year. You couldn't have a meaningful jubilee unless sin was first dealt with. So it was held off until the Day of Atonement. Anyway, there aren't many references by this name to the Day of Atonement in Scripture. There is not any description of the Day of Atonement in any of the Old Testament narratives. You can read the Old Testament and you almost get the impression that this wasn't observed. But I think the reason it's not spoken of is that's related to the fact that this was not a celebratory day. It was a day of humility and self-sacrifice and sorrow for sin. So there wasn't much to record about it because Jewish life ground to a halt on the Day of Atonement, 
except, and you notice this as I read chapter 16, except for the work of the high priest. That's his busy day. And all of the activity of that day centers on the high priest and his work. I mentioned in one of our previous sessions that the sin offerings and the trespass offerings, the normal offerings, other offerings for sin, all of the hard work there was done by the worshiper, not by the priests. If you brought a sacrifice, you were the one who had to kill it and butcher it. And the priest's main job was simply to stoke the fires that burned those sacrifices. The high priest would oversee and direct that work, but he didn't kill and butcher the animals. That was the job of the worshiper on normal days. And on normal days, the high priest would wear garments that were ornamental, decked with gold pieces, emblems, and a gold breastplate. But on this day, notice, as I read from chapter 16, he put on plain linen garments and set to work offering these sacrifices himself, alone. And there were lots of sacrifices to be offered on that day. I I count 15. Follow me with this. Verse 3 of chapter 16. Go back to chapter 16 because we'll we'll hang there for a while. Verse 3 talks about a bull and a ram that were for Aaron's personal sin offering. So that's two animals. Numbers 29 verse 8 describes what the people of Israel are to bring for their corporate offering. I read that from Numbers 2019. They're to bring one bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old. So that's nine more animals, making a total of 11 with the two Aaron brought. Then Numbers 29.11 adds one male goat for a sin offering. So that's 12. And then these two goats were chosen. One is sent into the wilderness, so we won't count him, but the other one is sacrificed. So the sacrificial goat makes 13 animals. And then on top of that, under the law of Moses, two lambs had to be offered every day without exception, not just on the Day of Atonement, but every single day. One was offered in the morning, and the other was offered at twilight. Exodus 29, verses 38 and 39. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two one-year-old lambs every day, continuously. Then one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the second lamb you shall offer at twilight. And on the Day of Atonement, those animals still had to be offered. And since the high priest is the only priest on duty on the Day of Atonement, it would fall to him to offer the morning and evening sacrifice as well. So that's two more animals bringing the count to 15. And I've got to tell you, killing and butchering and burning one bull, that would tax me, especially if I had to do it alone. That would be it. That's a lot of butchery for one man to carry out, and it would be an exhausting day for the high priest. In fact, according to Jewish records, by most accounts, the high priest had to prepare himself during the previous seven days before this by staying in nearly solitary confinement. He didn't want to defile himself with any kind of uncleanness, and he had to save up his strength for this grueling day. And look at all he had to do besides the ceremonial, besides the, the slaughters, he had to do these ceremonial washings and changes of garment and a grain offering and the sprinkling of blood. And all of this was done under the stress of knowing that if he entered the Holy of Holies in an unworthy manner, he would die. You know, the tabernacle's most holy place, the Holy of Holies, is 
where the ark with the mercy seat resided. resided. It was covered with a veil, the, the cubicle where that was, and, and entry into it was not done flippantly or lightly. And in fact, only one person, the high priest, was ever permitted to enter into that part of the tabernacle. And he could only go in there on the Day of the Atonement. And only then if he followed these strict ceremonial instructions. And so in, in addition to all the physical stamina that would be required of the high priest, there was a great deal of holy fear surrounding his duties on that day. Verse 1, remember, says, these instructions came to Moses immediately after Nadab and Abihu, who were Aaron's own sons, were burnt to death by fire from heaven the memory of seeing Aaron's sons smitten for carelessly worshiping God in a way God had not commanded, this was still raw in the people's collective memory. And so everybody knew in the most literal terms that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is a Jewish tradition, actually, that's recorded in a mystical Jewish commentary known as the Book of Zohar, that says that when the high priest would enter into the most holy place every year, a knot, this is what it says, I'm quoting exactly, a knot of rope of gold hangs from his leg from fear, perhaps he would die in the holy of holies, and they would need to pull him out with this rope, because nobody was going to go in there after him. Now, Scripture doesn't actually say he had to go in with a rope around him, and Jewish scholars don't actually agree on whether that really happened or not, but it is clear from Scripture that entry into the Holy of Holies was not a privilege to be trifled with. So, let's survey the sequence of these events on the Day of Atonement. I read the chapter. I want to walk you through it now. The first thing I want you to notice is that every detail of these instructions is for Aaron, the high priest. There is nothing for anyone else to do except, in the final phrase of verse 21, a man who is ready to do this one thing leads the scapegoat into the wilderness and turns it loose. And then there are some other guys who, who take the offerings out of the camp to burn them. But, but the work at the temple itself is all errands. He's the only one doing anything. Everything outlined in this chapter is done by the high priest because he's serving as a type of Christ. This is a symbol and a reminder that the work of atonement, the work of our redemption is all Christ's. We don't add any work of our own, no merit of our own, to the atoning work of Christ. But this also means that the high priest has no rest on this day. He literally does not sit down all day. And, and everything he does, he serves as a type of Christ. He is a living foreshadowing of Christ, but at the same time, he is a very different kind of high priest from the one who offered one sacrifice for sins for all time and then sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. That's Hebrews 10, 13, and we're going to come back to that. But let's survey Leviticus 16 one last time, and bear in mind as we do this that Aaron is acting as a type and a foreshadowing of Christ. His work is merely symbolic, and by that I mean this is not really an efficacious atonement. The blood of these bulls and goats doesn't do anything real with regard to sin. It is not efficacious because Scripture says it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats 
could ever take away sin. But the symbolism is important, and so let's look at it. Here is the sequence of events. We'll start in verse 3. Aaron first brings a bull for his own personal sin offering and a ram for his burnt offering. There is no parallel to this step of the day in the work of Christ, of course, because Jesus was already pure and sinless already. But in bringing these offerings, the act of bringing an offering for his own sin, Aaron is acknowledging the need for a true high priest who is holy and innocent and undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. That's how Scripture describes Christ, the true high priest. Aaron is just a symbol of that, and so he, he has to atone for his own sins, or at least offer a, a symbolic atonement for his sins before he can do any of this. Then in verse 4, Aaron changes out of this majestic ornamental priestly garment that he normally wears and changes into the plain garments of white linen that would normally be worn, that's the costume of the rest of the the priests in the temple. So he he dresses down like just a plain priest. This step is kind of reminiscent of Christ laying aside his heavenly glory, as described in Philippians 2 verse 5, taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he further humbled himself. And so you see Aaron humbling himself by removing the ornamental garments and putting on a plain priest's uniform. Also, verse 4, he performs a ceremonial washing. And again, this is evocative of the need for personal purity, absolute purity. And it's also a public acknowledgement that in and of himself, Aaron cannot be the Savior for Israel because like everyone else, he needs a Savior. And then verse 5, he takes two male goats for a sin offering, one ram for a bird offering. These animals, plus the bull and the ram and the seven lambs that are mentioned in Numbers 29 verse 8, these are supplied by the people from a kind of collective herd. And every one of these animals, except for the scapegoat, is going to shed his blood as a symbol of what atonement costs. And verse 6, Aaron ceremonially presents the bull that he has brought as a sin offering. He's just presenting it here. He's not sacrificing it. He does this by bringing the bull to the front entrance of the tabernacle and declaring this bull is an offering to Yahweh. And then verses 7 through 10, he casts lots to determine, uh, actually to demonstrate that In the providence of God, it is Yahweh who sovereignly decides which goat will be a sacrifice and which one will be the scapegoat. Verse 9, he sacrifices the goat that was chosen as a sacrifice, and he ceremonially presents the other one to Yahweh. Verse 11, Aaron kills and offers the bull as a sin offering for himself and for his household, signifying that he, Aaron, and his family are sinners in need of atonement. This again points to the the perfect, sinless, divine holiness of Christ, who needed no atonement for himself, because although he was tempted in all things like we are, yet he was without sin. He had no sin to be atoned for, which means Aaron cannot symbolize Christ in doing the work of atonement unless his personal guilt is first expiated, at least symbolically here. 
And once Aaron is finished making his personal sin offering, he must then enter the holy place. Verse 12, verses 12 to 13. He takes the fire pan full of coals, sprinkles it with fragrant incense so that the smoke that comes out of it is not only thick smoke, it's, it smells good. And, and he fills the interior of the Holy of Holies with this aromatic, sweet-smelling smoke. So it's foggy in there. Things can't be seen even. And then verse 14, he takes some of the blood of the bull and sprinkles it with his finger on the mercy seat. So he's inside the Holy of Holies. He sprinkles it with his finger on the mercy seat. He sprinkles the blood with his finger seven times. Verses 15 through 17, he goes back out of the holy place then slaughters the sacrificial goat, and then re-enters the Holy of Holies and sprinkles the goat blood the same way he had previously sprinkled the bull blood. And this time, he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat itself. Mercy seat, you know, is that ornate lid that covered the ark. Remember, the bull had been offered as a sin offering for Aaron. The goat is a sacrifice and... uh, and sin offering for the people, and it it symbolizes propitiation or the satisfaction of the wrath and justice of a holy God for the people of Israel. But also, verse 16, it's a ceremonial cleansing for the holy place itself, because this deals symbolically, at least, with the problem of spiritual defilement that stems from the fact that these priests themselves are sinners— Verses 18 and 19, he goes back out and sprinkles the altar of burnt offering with the blood of the bull and the goat. Verses 20 and 22, through 22, he lays his hands on the head of the remaining goat, which signifies the imputation of the sins of the people to this symbolic sin-bearer. And then he sends the goat out into the wilderness by the hand of a fit man. And this man then would take the goat out into a vast wilderness and just turn it loose. What became of it, nobody actually knows. It just went loose in the wilderness. Verse 22, And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an isolated land, which signified the removal of guilt. In the words of Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. And the goat symbolized that, the scapegoat. Verses 23 through 25, Meanwhile, Aaron, while this guy's taken to go down into the wilderness, Aaron changes back into his normal ceremonial high priestly garment, the one with all the ornamental gold flourishes and that gold breastplate, and he finishes the work of offering the burnt offerings, verses 26 through 29. And when the guy who took the goat into the wilderness returns, he must go through a ceremonial washing as well, because the defilement of sin is such that even though this guy was merely a guide and a guardian, he's not the one who actually bore those sins, his proximity to that goat and the defilement of so much sin, remember that goat symbolically is bearing all the sins of all the people of Israel, this guy's proximity to that requires him to do a ceremonial washing when he comes back. And likewise, for the guys who take the hides and the leftover parts of the goat and the bull that were sacrificed as sin offerings, they must return and go through a ritual cleansing and a change of garments as well. 
So this is a busy and exhausting day of bloody sacrifices and ceremonial washings, and on top of all of that, mourning for sin. And this was supposed to be done annually. It served as a reminder that the daily animal sacrifices were not truly efficacious for the removal of human guilt. And furthermore, so many sins were committed by people through neglect or carelessness or ignorance, sins that were forgotten and, and, and then overlooked for some reason and therefore never atoned for. So the Day of Atonement is a symbolic reminder that not only that sin requires atonement, but also we all sin far more than we ever have sought forgiveness for. And all that blood, all those animals, the scapegoat carrying sin off into the wilderness, and still that was not enough to deal with the sin problem in a way that was permanent because the very next morning priests would carry on as they always had, offering a lamb every morning and another lamb at sunset, and people would continue during the day to bring sin offerings and trespass offerings and burnt offerings, and every day the smoke of all these burnt offerings would ascend from the tabernacle. There was no end to this complex, exhausting system of bloody offerings. Anyone who gave it a moment's thought would instantly see that the blood of bulls and goats were not a sufficient atonement to propitiate the wrath of God. And that is why messianic expectation was always high in the hearts of true believers. You see it in the prophets. You see it in people during the time when Christ actually came. Old Testament believers were eager for Messiah to come. They didn't know how, but they knew that when he came, he would save his people from their sins. And the Old Testament was full of promises about this. Jeremiah 23, verse 6, speaking of Messiah, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. And all the Levitical sacrifices, especially the Day of Atonement, were pointing to the salvation that Messiah would ultimately bring. So, turn with me now to the book of Hebrews, and I want to wrap this up. And I'm going to skim through one short thread of logic in the book of Hebrews. I want you to see how thoroughly the priestly work of Christ fulfills and supersedes the Old Testament sacrificial system, all of it, including the Day of Atonement. We'll start in chapter 7, and be prepared to turn pages because I want to go through this as quickly as possible. I read such a long passage, I'm determined to try to let you out a little bit early. But here the writer of Hebrews is showing that Christ's priestly work is infinitely better than the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical system. Christ's atonement is finished, and it's efficacious. And to borrow some famous Calvinistic language, his death is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin, and it is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. Hebrews 10 verse 12, he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And then near the end of Hebrews 7, 
the writer begins to build this case that Christ is in every way superior to the Levitical priesthood. For one thing, he's eternal. Hebrews 7, 23 and 24. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, they had to cleanse themselves and offer sacrifices for themselves, as we have seen, even Aaron. But in Christ, Hebrews says, we have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. A clear statement there with reference to the Day of Atonement, where the priest first offered atonement for himself and then for the people, Jesus didn't need to do that because he offered up himself, and that was sufficient. And the Levitical priests, you know, worked nonstop, day after day, but chapter 8, verse 1, we have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of God of the throne of the majesty in heavens, in the heavens. In other words, his work is finished his priestly work, his sacrificial work. It's finished. And chapter 8 goes on to argue, therefore, he is the mediator of a superior covenant, a new covenant. And the new covenant has some features in it that are similar to, but better than, the old covenant. It has a better priest. It has a heavenly tabernacle. It's efficacious once for all in its atoning work. In all those ways, better than the old covenant. And by the way, the point in drawing All of these parallels between Old and New Covenant, between the priesthood and Christ, it's not to suggest that Christ's work is an imitation of the Levitical system. The truth is just the opposite. All the features of the Levitical system, chapter 9, verse 23, were copies of the things in heaven. Everything in the Old Testament sacrificial system, and especially the Day of Atonement, was an imitation and a symbol of some eternal thing that is by definition greater in God's eternal plan of redemption than any of the law's sacrifices and ceremonial features. So now, look at Hebrews 10. And I want you to notice how many parallels there are between the symbols in Leviticus 16, in the Day of Atonement, and the eternal reality that has been brought to light in Christ. So follow the logic here. Hebrews 10, verse 1, the law has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things. It can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Because there was no end to the Old Testament sacrifices, it ought to have been clear that they're not efficacious. This is not working in any kind of final way. Verse 2, otherwise they would have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. Those sacrifices, verse 3, were nothing more than a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. On the other hand, verse 18, 
where there is no forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering. Or, sorry, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. And that is the actual result of Christ's atoning work. There is now forgiveness for these things, so there's no longer any need for an offering for sin. And I want you to notice the allusions in the next paragraph, references back to what happened on the Old Testament Day of Atonement, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not just the high priest, but every believer has free and unfettered access to the heavenly holy of holies, the real holy of holies, the literal holiest place in all the universe. We have that access, verse 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And there you have the fulfillment of what the washing and sprinkling prefigured. And it's way better than any Old Testament saint ever could possibly have envisioned including now a truly cleansed conscience, not just sin papered over, but the conscience cleansed and and guilt that is literally removed. It's not just symbolically sent by goat into the wilderness, but literally removed as far as the east is from the west, meaning infinitely far away from us. And therefore, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10 is the best commentary I know on the Day of Atonement. And it shows us that despite all of the bleak and bloody imagery of that day and the rest of the sacrifices in Leviticus, it's actually the other theme in Leviticus, namely the holiness and glory of God. That is where true believers ultimately enter into triumph, in the holiness of God and His glory. Because of Christ's work on our behalf, we are even now being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, so that no matter how grotesque your sin, no matter how helpless your life might seem, Christ is a Savior who can lift you out of the miry clay and set your feet on a rock. And so my encouragement to you, if you do not know Christ, who is the only efficacious atonement for sin... You need to turn from your sin and embrace him by faith today. You don't have to earn his favor. You can lay hold of it actually only by faith, and he will cleanse your guilt away. He will cover you with a pure garment of his own perfect righteousness. And that is the message of the gospel. And I hope you can see how powerfully all of that was prefigured in the Day of Atonement. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a great high priest who atoned for sin by shedding his own innocent blood. May we cling to him by faith with the boldness that encourages us to enter the most holy place and seek his forgiveness and his intercession as he serves as our eternal high priest. And may our lives glorify him, we pray in his name. Amen.